calling all aspiring podcasters. This is your sign to start your own podcast because we have just the right tool for you. Before we started podcasting, we really thought that everything would be such a hassle, especially the editing. But we found the best and most convenient all-around podcast tool out there, Podmachine. Podmachine will take care of all your podcasting needs. From audio production, designs, and marketing growth, all you have to do is sit back, relax, and keep creating great content that sounds professional. It's time for you to start sounding like a pro with Podmachine today. Sign up and get a free episode trial. And once you're convinced of how good it can be and how it helped us, you can start for as low as only $49.99 for four episodes in a month. But wait, there's more. If you use our code PHMURDER, all caps, no spaces, you get one free episode credit upon subscribing. Just head on to podmachine.com and let them do the dirty work so you can do the fun stuff and sound like a pro. Podcast Network Asia. This episode may include topics, references, or discussions around sexual assault, domestic violence, stalking, physical violence, or subject matters that may be disturbing to some of our listeners. We do acknowledge that this content may be difficult. We also encourage you to care for your safety and well-being. Shocking, sad, revealing, and deeply researched, PH Murder Stories podcast covers the true account of infamous killings and true crime stories from the Philippines. There's no such thing as questions, just hidden answers. Stay tuned as we revisit the inconceivable crimes that exist. Some listeners may find the following content of PH Murder Stories highly disturbing due to its graphic nature. PH Murder Stories does not condone nor promote violence of all sorts. Viewer discretion is advised. But if you were to picture the four corners of the world, in my world, we were the four. My family, friends, and myself would like to ask anyone out there to please help us. Papa, Mama, be there. Sorry, I never told you. All I wanted to say 
And then I thought to myself, oh my God, is he crazy or what? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, honestly, I'm sorry to say this, but yeah, I just thought it's crazy. And I know eventually we'll be together one sweet day. On July 10, 2001, a Filipino family of three was found murdered inside their residence in North Ryde, New South Wales, Australia. Initial reports suggest that the crime was racially motivated. However, further investigations say otherwise, and their findings would later on shock the entire country that was almost fooled by the killer. The Gonzalez family consisted of 46-year-old Teddy, the father, 43-year-old Mary, the mother, 20-year-old Seth, the son, and 18-year-old Claudine, the daughter. According to the initial investigation, Seth was seen by his neighbors outside running and shouting for help. He was quickly accompanied by two neighbors named John and Shane. Both neighbors tried to calm him down, but Seth, at the time, was not himself and was completely disgruntled. John called the police while Shane accompanied Seth and went inside the Gonzalez family residence. Both were shocked after seeing the lifeless bodies of his parents. First, Seth ran to his father, Teddy. He tried to wake him up and began shouting, Papa! Papa! But Teddy was unresponsive. Next, Seth went over to Mary, his mother, and tried to wake her up, but she also did not respond. After realizing that his family was brutalized, he quickly went upstairs and saw his sister, Claudine, in the pool of her own blood, and claimed that she was still breathing, so he performed CPR. Afterward, Shane tried to get Seth outside the house to calm him down and wait until the police arrived. They also kept in mind the possibility that the suspects are still hiding inside the house, though they quickly ruled out that possibility as they promptly confirmed that Seth and his neighbors were the only people in the house at that present time. Upon checking Claudine's room, the police found her lifeless body, just like how Seth described it. They also saw blood smears in her bedroom wall, probably from her own blood, which implies how gruesome this case was from the very start. Following Seth's initial testimony, the authorities secured the crime scene and provided a search team, including police-trained dogs, to look for the two men that Seth initially told that he was chasing after. Meanwhile, the police found racial remarks spray-painted over the wall in the living room which indicates that the Gonzalez family were victims of a grisly hate crime. It was also suggested that the family were victims of a robbery, which later on would be debunked. The authorities declared all three of Seth's family members dead. No pulse was found from Teddy, Mary's throat was lacerated, and Claudine's head was bashed and had stab wounds on her body. According to investigators, the case was already complicated to begin with, 
as they had no other witnesses aside from Seth's testimony. The Gonzalez family used to reside in Baguio City, Philippines. Teddy Gonzalez grew up in a poor family, but that did not stop him from excelling in school and working hard to achieve his goals. Teddy met Mary in their early 20s. Both had two children, Seth and Claudine. Going through their family history in the Philippines, we also found out that Teddy got a law degree from the Baguio College's foundation, where he also taught. As Teddy became more successful, he used his savings to build the Queen Victoria Hotel in Baguio City, where his family also resided. Teddy also became the secretary of then Baguio City Mayor Francisco Paraan. However, in 1990, Teddy's luck seemed to have run out as the Queen Victoria Hotel was destroyed due to the infamous and deadly Luzon earthquake that killed an estimated 2,412 lives and injured thousands of more people. Three of the four members of the Gonzalez family were safe from the earthquake. Unfortunately for Seth, who was nine years old at the time, he got trapped in the rubble. Worrying that his son was in danger and the rescuers were limited, Teddy returned to save him and dug all the debris he could until it was safe to pull him out of the area. After experiencing the catastrophic Luzon earthquake, the Gonzalez family decided to move on and migrate to New South Wales, Australia, where Teddy became an immigration lawyer. His wife, Mary, also had relatives residing in Australia, including Emily Luna, which would later play a big role in the investigation. After moving into a peaceful neighborhood in New South Wales, the Gonzalez family seemed to have it all figured out after losing almost everything they had in Baguio City and Seth's near-death experience as a child. However, that was not the case, as there were increasing troubles between Seth and his father, which may have negatively affected Seth. According to relatives, the younger Claudine was their parents' favorite because she was warm and generous, while Seth seemed to be a problematic son who often fought with his parents. These crucial details would help the police put the pieces together and exert all efforts to solve one of the most gruesome murders in Australia. To kick off the investigation, the detectives assigned to the case commissioned a task force called Strike Force Tawas, which sought to get to the bottom of the killings. It is also notable to point out that amid the preliminary findings, Presented to the task force, some probers believe that the outrageous racial remarks found spray-painted in the Gonzalez family's walls could have been a ruse to mess up with the investigation. At the beginning of this case, those racial remarks left by the killers 
sparked outrage all over Australia, which also helped Seth gain sympathy for going through the loss of his family. Seth Gonzalez was a student at Macquarie University and worked part-time as a paralegal at his father's law firm. After being out with a friend, he came home to a blood-soaked scene wherein his family was murdered. He saw the words, Fuck off Asians, KKK, spray-painted on the wall. Seth then called for help, saying that his family had been shot and that there was a lot of blood. The authorities arrive, not knowing that they have been played by the one who would end up being known as the baby-faced killer. Hi, dear listener. My name is Christine Abregana, and I've just started a podcast that covers true crime cases from all over Asia. It is called Asia in the Shadows, a true crime podcast. Ever heard of the eight immortal restaurant massacre of Macau? Or the pop star turned killer from Malaysia? Or perhaps the mysterious death of a Maldivian model with blue eyes in Bangladesh? If not, then make sure to tune in to Asia in the Shadows, a true crime podcast where I will be sharing three stories every month on a Wednesday about the most jarring crimes in Asia. For more information, make sure to follow us on Instagram at AITSPod. See you soon. In December 2000, after years of hard work, the Gonzalez family moved into their new home located in North Ride. However, seven months later, on July 10, 2001, their home became the crime scene of their gruesome deaths. According to Detective Inspector Jeff Leonard, since an Asian family was involved in the murders, Two members of their Asian crime squad were included in Strike Force Tawas to cooperate in the investigation. The forensic team arrived at the North Ride home and collected physical evidence from the crime scene. It would appear that the attackers conducted a search throughout the home, particularly the bedrooms on the second floor. The doors and closets of the rooms were also left open. The team expected the contents of the closets to be ransacked because the attackers were supposedly looking for money and valuables. Instead, what they saw were clothes folded neatly and other belongings organized accordingly. Nothing seemed to be out of place. In the living room, Teddy's body was sprawled on the floor. His car keys were beside him, as well as his open briefcase, with papers and documents scattered everywhere. According to forensic pathologist Alan Kalla, there were signs of struggle because of the scattered blood on the home's floor tiles and bloody shoe prints, which are also signs of movement throughout the ordeal. What the investigators found to be interesting was when the briefcase was lifted off the floor. There was blood underneath. 
Detective Inspector Mick Ashwood claimed that the forensic evidence led them to believe that something happened to the briefcase after the killing, seemingly to stage the scene as something else. Similarly, the contents of Mary's bag were also spilled beside her lifeless body and had blood underneath them. In Claudine's room, curved indents were bashed in the wall by either a golf club or a baseball bat. In the hallway near the kitchen, the investigators also found writings on the wall in blue paint that read, Fuck off, Asians, which they found offensive as it stood out from everything else that they have uncovered so far. In different parts of the house were three murdered people, then suddenly, the attackers placed racial graffiti on the wall. The authorities have not seen this type of gruesome case before. A damaged fly screen was removed from the open kitchen window, which the investigators found to be inconsistent with other homicide cases, as it was not the usual method of entry for break-ins. After checking the home even further, there was no sign of a likely murder weapon, but two knives were missing from the knife block in the kitchen. Upon examining Claudine's injuries, a blunt force trauma to the head was supposedly done by a baseball bat, but no such weapon was found at the crime scene and nearby. In order to gather more information behind the family's tragedy, investigators reached out to the family's neighbors and Teddy's associates as well as anyone who could provide any leads. Furthermore, the investigators examined other pieces of data and evidence they had, such as the computers and their respective files, to see if the family was ever threatened before their deaths. Seth and other members of the family were asked to provide their statements regarding the killings. Meanwhile, post-mortems were conducted on Teddy, Mary, and Claudine to get detailed information behind the killings and to estimate their time of death. The autopsy revealed that all three victims suffered massive stab wounds on their bodies. As for Teddy and Mary, there were defensive marks found on their arms and hands, implying that both tried to stop their attacker. Claudine, on the other hand, did not exhibit signs of struggle, which the authorities assume that she was attacked from behind. The investigation and post-mortems established that the family died between 4 and 7 in the evening. The detectives looked into the phone records of all three victims. They discovered that Claudine was at home at 4.10 in the afternoon, as the last person in her call log was from a friend that was inviting her to join in a party later that day. However, after her friend's call, Claudine became unreachable, which meant that she was attacked moments after the invite from her friend. The authorities also found clues that Mary was attacked as soon as she arrived at around 5.30 in the afternoon because they found a receipt from the recent purchase she made at 4.40 in the afternoon, which gave the investigators her possible time of death. There was a gap of 90 minutes before Teddy was attacked as he arrived home at around 7 in the evening. The time of death was calculated from his comparative body temperature. Claudine and Mary's bodies were found to have had lower temperatures than Teddy's, which indicated Seth's mother and sister's deaths were done much earlier.
A few days after the gruesome murders, Seth was taken back to his home and was asked to reenact how he discovered the bodies of his family. Prior to the reenactment, the investigators assured Seth that since it would be difficult to recall the traumatic crime scene he saw, he could suspend the reenactment at any time. He told the police that he left his father's office late in the afternoon, then drove to their home. He pulled into the garage at around 6 in the evening. According to him, since it was raining when he arrived, he stayed inside the car and talked to a friend on the phone. He then called the house phone, but when no one answered, he drove off to see a friend who couldn't locate his new home. Because of this, Seth went on to pick up another friend. Seth's alibi was that he was with his friend, Sam Delio, who neither knew nor was told anything about the murders, and they both went around the city. After dropping Sam off, Seth returned home at around 11.30 in the evening. He then called the police to say, that he had discovered the bodies of his family upon his arrival and that he had chased off the intruders. According to Seth, upon entering his home, he saw something in the living room. Upon closer inspection, he saw that it was his father on the floor. He went to him and knelt down. Afterward, he called for an ambulance. Seth said, quote, As I walked in, I saw my father lying there. I went to him and I knelt down, and I think at that stage, I was screaming for my mother for some reason. I was also screaming for my father. I was screaming, Papa. I was holding him. I was trying to hug him. I was trying to wake him up. I ran to my mother. I was hugging her and trying to wake her as well. My first instinct was to try and resuscitate her in some way. Unquote. Upon looking for his sister, Seth said, quote, When I opened the door, I hit something. I think it may have been part of my sister's body. I slowly pushed the door open afraid that if she was in a fragile position, I might hurt her." Unquote. But if you were to picture the four corners of the world, in my world, we were the four. My family, friends, and myself would like to ask anyone out there to please help us. In the days after the murders, Seth appeared in the media, begging the killer or killers to come forward. He also pleaded for the New South Wales government to offer a reward. During this time, the investigators have considered him to be a person that needed to be asked further questions to shed more light on the tragic incident. The authorities now had a better estimate on the times of death of Teddy 
Mary, and Claudine. Through this, they found a discrepancy in Seth's statement about finding his sister on the night of the murder. Earlier, during the reenactment, Seth said that he assumed that Claudine's heart was still beating, so in an attempt to revive her, he performed CPR on her. Seth's statement was debunked as Claudine would have already been dead hours before Seth discovered her. Seth also told a story that investigators found difficult to believe. Seth had apparently disturbed an intruder in their house. The investigators did a time frame study wherein one of them recorded the time it took to go from the stairs through the main door, then outside to lift the door of the garage. According to them, by the time that Seth did that, the intruder in front of the house would have already been long gone. Seth insisted that he saw a figure or two of people running around the corner. Seth was also linked to the unidentified bloody shoe prints found at the crime scene because when the investigators searched through his room, they took a particular interest in the shoebox found on the floor. The police then purchased an identical pair according to the details on the box and found that it perfectly matched the shoe prints found at the crime scene. After gathering the necessary information through evidence and interviews, the detectives considered various scenarios for the murders. They were unsure what the motive was behind the killings, but they found that Teddy's wallet, which had a substantial amount of cash in it, was still at the crime scene. Therefore, robbery could not have been the motive. Because of this, the detectives began to consider that the killings were a form of hate crime. Seth told them about a recent road rage incident wherein his family was abused and followed by a car full of thugs. The driver then drove past their home, yelled out a derogatory remark against the Asian family, then drove off. Since Teddy, Mary, and Claudine were killed at different times, around an hour between each other, it was concluded that the crime was planned. According to Detective Inspector Mick Shee, one thing that stood out from the crime scene was the massive overkill that the victims endured as their injuries were in excess to have killed them. This was normally a sign that it was an interfamilial killing as well as a killing that was done with a large amount of emotion. Seth also suggested that a Philippine businessman may have been behind the murders, but there wasn't any evidence to support that claim. In domestic cases of murder, the prime suspects are usually those closest to the victims.
This spooky season, the last 24 hours podcast is going to the movies. With a feature on some of the scariest movies in cinema history and reveal the true crime stories that inspired them. Plus, we turn up the scare factor with an exploration of the Philippine true crime stories and personalities that bear a freaky similarity to our featured movies. And play a game of auditory trick or treat with a choose your own adventure format where we give you the option of how you want to experience the episode. Don't miss the special new season of the last 24 hours podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other podcast platforms. The Strike Force Tawas decided to call Seth in for further questioning, but they had to do so before he gained more sympathy during his eulogy at his family's funeral. Seth expressed his grief after losing his family through a song, which confused most attendees of the funeral. He gave the eulogy at the funeral, then performed an a cappella rendition of the Mariah Carey and Boys to Men duet, One Sweet Day dedicated to the family that the police are starting to believe Seth had just killed. Papa, Mama, Dida. Sorry, I never told you. All I wanted to say. And then I thought to myself, oh my God. Is he crazy or what? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, honestly, I'm sorry to say this, but yeah, I just thought it's crazy. And I know eventually we'll be together one sweet day. Despite gaining the sympathy of people, the police were uncovering more information about the deaths of Teddy, Mary, and Claudine that led them to believe that Seth was in fact behind one of the most gruesome crimes in Australia. Seth's statements did not fit the time and manner of his sister's death. However, the authorities said that blood doesn't gush if one has already been dead for quite some time. Based on the evidence, the authorities found only fine smears of blood on Seth's clothing, not the soaking kind that is expected from the gushing of blood that Seth supposedly tried to stop. A robbery gone wrong was what authorities thought had happened, but there was no sign of forced entry to the house and no signs of searching around the house. It was later on discovered that the family had died over a three-hour period which suggests that it couldn't have been a robbery since thieves rarely hang around at a crime scene for that long. According to Emily Luna's testimony, she arrived at the Gonzalez residence at around 6 in the evening. After ringing the doorbell, there was still no answer. She then saw, through the window beside the door, a figure that resembled the man. She claimed that the man wore a coat and a hat. Her son, who was with her, told her that it must have been a coat stand. 
After ringing the doorbell a third time and still no answer, Emily went to check the side entrance. It was there that she saw Seth's car parked in the garage, which disproves Seth's alibi that he was out at the time of the murders. She thought of entering from the side entrance of the home, but decided not to and went back to the doorbell. She left when there was still no one who answered her. During the investigation, the authorities found that Seth tried to poison his family. According to Seth's online activity, investigators discovered that Seth was researching poisonous seeds then was able to get those seeds by mail order, which can be turned into a highly fatal toxin. So much so that the United States categorized it as a weapon of mass destruction. Even just a small amount of the poison is capable of killing hundreds of people. A week before the murders, Seth's mother was hospitalized due to severe food poisoning. On the day of the gruesome murders, the authorities also found the poisonous plant that produced those seeds stuffed inside the container in his bedroom. The police were able to gather information that Seth was considered to be a habitual and accomplished liar. Seth lied to his friends from being signed a multi-million dollar record deal with a music company to being a champion kickboxer who just returned from a title fight in Brazil, to running a modeling company that had him going on flights to New York to meet with cosmetic companies, to being a lawyer who lived in a posh condo in the city. After the killings, Seth, who had little money to begin with, received around $15,000 in victims' compensation for living and funeral expenses. At the time of his father's death, Teddy's wealth was worth millions of dollars. Following his death, Seth became the sole heir to the fortune. Seth's extended family was no exception to his lies. Two months after the killings, he told his relatives that he had a brain tumor. It was revealed later on that it was all a ruse in order for him to get his father's money so he could pay for a luxury car. Just days after the murders, Seth visited his father's accountant to ask about how large his parents' estate bonds were and how he could get access to it. Weeks after, he went to a Lexus dealer and placed an order for a Lexus sports car worth $175,000. Seth even reached out to his godmother, who was the one managing his father's rental properties in the Philippines, and asked her, for $190,000 for urgent medical treatment for his tumors. He sent her forged documents as proof that he needed the payment. Luckily, the godmother consulted Emily and the police about Seth's demands, and she refused to give in to his request. The police have also stopped Seth's victims' compensation payments. With little money left, Seth went on to pawn his mother's jewelry and sold his parents' car for over $87,000. Seth's lavish lifestyle, just mere days after his family's deaths, confused his other relatives. According to Emily, greed was the one thing she could think of as Seth's motive. Why would someone who just lost his family first go and see his dad's accountant? few days after the incident why would he 
drive his mom's sports car around and dress it up with new tires, new skirts, steering wheel, you know. Almost everyone in Seth's relatives had mixed feelings about what happened to his family and whether or not he played a part in it. Seth's grandmother, Amelita Claridades, had doubts as to why Seth had to lie if he was innocent. Emily felt that it was Seth who was behind the killings. But she pretended to not think too much about the tragic incident, as she had no one to talk to about it in the family. After purchasing a high-rise apartment, showing off his luxury car, and other surprising actions that would certainly raise some concern, the authorities were already convinced to arrest him. But they still needed more evidence that Seth was indeed the killer. Since then, Seth has been put under constant surveillance to see if he will give anything away to point him to the murders. And he did. Nearing the end of the investigation, Seth was asked questions about the crime, and he said things that only the perpetrator would have known. At this point, Strike Force Tawas was now able to piece together what really happened at the Gonzalez family residence. More information emerged about Seth's childhood that resulted in further conflicts between him and his family. Seth had been a bedwetter since childhood and refused to see a psychologist about it. His mother became more and more frustrated every time she had to do the laundry after Seth had wet the bed. Claudine would also tell relatives about this, which humiliated Seth. Seth has had conflicts with his parents regarding his poor performance at school. Claudine discovered that Seth had been falsifying his exam results then proceeded to tell their parents, which angered Seth. After the tragedy, Seth's actual grades were sent via mail, and it was revealed that he was indeed failing. His eagerness to get rid of the pressure caused by his parents only grew so much, up to the point that he proceeded with his devious plan of killing his family. At around 4 in the afternoon, Seth arrived home after meeting with his parents in their office. During this time, Seth was already in trouble because he was failing his exams at university. He blamed his sister for revealing his lies to their parents. After discovering his academic failures, Seth's parents threatened to take away his car and other privileges he enjoyed until he improved his grades. When he arrived home, he picked up a baseball bat, then went upstairs to where his sister was. 
While Claudine was studying in her bedroom, she was suddenly attacked, viciously and swiftly. According to the autopsy, she was hit at least six times across the head with a baseball bat and was then strangled. Each blow by the baseball bat left blood spatters across the walls and furnishings, as well as dents in the wall. Seth took out a knife, then stabbed Claudine five times in the neck and twice in the abdomen. Two knives were used, the longest and sharpest from the kitchen. Afterward, he picked up her red sweater and threw it over her body. Seth did not stop there. He proceeded to wait for his parents to come home. He wore his father's jacket to avoid getting blood on his clothes, then put on gardening gloves to hide his fingerprints. At around 5.30 in the afternoon, Mary arrived home from the office where she worked with her husband, Teddy, in his legal practice. Seth struck her from behind the moment she entered the house. Mary ended up with multiple stab wounds to her face, neck, chest, and abdomen. In one final cold act, Seth stood over his mother and slit her throat. An aggressive slash to her windpipe was the final blow. She was left in a pool of her own blood. Seth picked up her bag and spread its contents all over the floor beside his dead mother. He was far from done. However, he saw headlights shining outside. It was at this time that Emily arrived at the Gonzalez home. As Seth stood still, on the other side of the door, he was thought to have been a coat stand by Emily's son. However, she insisted that she really did see a figure of a man inside the home. After ringing the doorbell multiple times, with still no answer, Emily left. Then, I rang the bell again because I said maybe they just didn't hear it. And then again, there was no answer. And then I had a look on the, how would you call it, the bayside window next to the entrance door. And I was telling my son, oh, for a while I thought that was a man. It was like a shadow of a man wearing a hat, you know, and a long coat. Is that someone? No, Mom, it's a coat stand. Gerard did say that to me. Mom, it's just a coat stand, you know. I had to ring the doorbell again for the third time, and there was no answer. The thought came into my mind that um, to check on the side, because they have a side entrance as well. I decided to go towards Seth's car, which was parked on the carport. And I was 
thinking of going towards the side entrance of the house. But then something stopped me. Something stopped me like, oh, that's all right, I'll just ring them up tonight. So I went back to my car and drove off. At around seven in the evening, Teddy arrived. Like his wife, Teddy was also swiftly struck by Seth just after entering the house. Teddy was stabbed in the neck, chest, and abdomen. The wounds he suffered were much deeper and vicious. The strikes were more aggressive and powerful on him that his spinal cord was partially severed. After plunging the knife several times on his father's chest and neck, Seth grabbed the briefcase and released its contents near his father's body. After showering, Seth got some blue spray paint and painted the words, Fuck off, Asians on the wall behind the living room. In order to simulate a break-in, he removed the fly screen from the kitchen window. He then drove off to dispose of the paint can, bloody clothes, shoes, gardening gloves, and the murder weapons. Afterward, at around 8 in the evening, Saf picked up his friend, and went to the city, unbeknown to that friend, of what had just happened moments earlier. Hours later, Seth returned home, then acted out on the phone about how he discovered his family's dead bodies. Although Seth almost got away with the gruesome murders, the authorities discovered many loopholes from his initial testimony that the strike force Tawas successfully overcame. Emily Luna provided valuable information that proved Seth's lies, especially when she told the authorities that she saw Seth's car in the driveway at the time of the murders. The police confronted Seth about the inconsistencies in his version of events. Emily's testimony would prove Seth's earlier claims to be false, as Seth told authorities that he was out with his friends. When the police confronted Seth, he changed his version of the story and told them that he rode a taxicab and went to a brothel. He even paid a taxi driver and a prostitute to support his claims. Later on, the police went to the taxi driver and told him that the man who paid him was involved in a triple murder case. The taxi driver then said that he had never seen Seth before in his life. The police had proven this alibi to be false 
because Seth was already under surveillance when he tried to change his testimony. His story was sought after by the media, and in exchange for interviews, Seth would demand large sums of money as payment. Seth even pretended to have been attacked after being hunted by killers, even staging a break-in and abduction. He claimed that his attackers threatened him not to talk to the media anymore, or his extended family would get hurt. While under constant surveillance, Seth's behavior became increasingly unstable, and his lies were becoming more apparent. It was a game of cat and mouse between Seth and the police as he tried to stay one step ahead of them. However, his lies would eventually catch up to him. As the police were getting ready to arrest him, they asked Seth to reenact his testimony for the final time in an attempt to confirm his innocence. Unfortunately for Seth, he gravely failed his reenactment, which led the authorities to arrest and charge him with three counts of murder. Uh, this morning, members of Strike Force Taywaz, who have been investigating the deaths of the Gonzalez family at uh, North Ride, executed a search warrant where certain property was uh, seized. A 21-year-old uh, male person was arrested. And uh, he has been charged in relation to the uh, murders of the uh, Gonzalez family, that being Teddy, Mary and Claudine Gonzalez. In June 2002, 11 months after the gruesome murders, Seth was formally charged with murder. It became a grueling legal battle as Seth launched a claim on his parents' estate in order to pay for the expensive legal team. However, the claim failed, and in April 2004, his trial was commenced. During the trial, Seth's alibi about being with a prostitute at the time of the murders was disproved by the prosecution. Seth tried to manufacture evidence by convincing one of the women who worked in the brothel that they were together that night. Unfortunately for Seth, his efforts in trying to convince the woman to support his alibi were discovered by the authorities through a series of over a hundred messages between the two of them. However, what Seth didn't know was that that woman did not work that particular week. The prosecution also pointed out Seth's purchase and use of the poisonous seeds and how his internet searches revealed that he had been looking for ways of killing. The seeds were turned into a poisonous liquid, which he then used to poison his mother prior to the killing. The said liquid was also found in his bedroom. Seth might have tried to slip those poisonous seeds into his mother's food to find out if it is lethal enough to kill his entire family. During Seth's murder trial, the jury members were brought to the Gonzalez family residence where one of them noticed a rare poisonous plant in the backyard. 
The plant grew after 22 months since Seth's arrest. There were also traces of blue spray paint that was found on Seth's clothes, particularly on one of his sleeves. The same blue paint that was used to write the message on the wall by the supposed attacker who broke into their house. On September 17, 2004, the jury found Seth guilty on all three charges of murder. The New South Wales Supreme Court sentenced Seth to life imprisonment for killing his family. He expressed no emotion nor remorse as he was given his sentence. The Strike Force Tawas was given widespread praise for their work on the case, particularly Detectives Leonard and Sheehy, as well as behind-the-scenes detective Paul Oglies, who was the one who didn't believe Seth throughout the investigation and did his best to prove Seth's guilt. By using the resources available to them, as they pieced together the evidence, as well as engaging with the killer himself, Strike Force Tawas was able to seize Seth as he got caught in his web of lies. Seth was driven to murder his family due to the pressure of being unlikely to live up to his parents' expectations of him becoming a doctor or a lawyer. His troubling relationship with his family made him turn into an evil person who felt like ending the lives of his loved ones would solve his problems. The significance of this case urged the Australian Parliament to amend its laws on realty, which obligates real estate agents to disclose to a potential buyer that there has been a murder or similar crimes that happened. This case truly got the world's attention, and many were shocked to learn that a young man that belonged to a well-provided family living in one of the safest neighborhoods in Australia had the means to commit these gruesome acts. We have to admit, the Gonzalez family massacre is one of the most complicated cases in history, which highlights Seth's level of greed that not everyone would be able to understand. Some would say that mental health problems caused by the pressure to live up to his parents' aspirations for him could be the most probable cause of Seth's way of thinking that led him to commit these outrageous acts. Nowadays, mental health awareness has significantly grown through the years, which has led to various accessible platforms available to help us go through our life struggles. Even during these trying times caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. To our listeners that are struggling right now, keep in mind that you are not alone. There will always be a place and a group of people willing to help you go through the hindrances of life. Stay strong. Once again, we would like to thank all of you guys for being part of the first anniversary of our podcasting journey. Expect more episodes to be released every second and fourth Saturday of the month. Stay tuned to our next episode as our female host narrates the gruesome killing of a Filipina OFW in Kuwait that was found dead inside her employer's freezer. Happy holidays, everyone. And always remember to stay safe as we celebrate this joyous day with our families.
for further updates. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at PH Murder Stories. And subscribe to our YouTube channel, PH Murder Stories. If you have case suggestions, please go to our website at phmurderstories.com and fill out the request form at File Your Blotter. Did you like this episode? Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, or if you're listening on other platforms, kindly send us a review on our Facebook page or send us a tweet. You can also share our podcast to your Instagram and Facebook stories through Spotify. We're also inviting you to join our Facebook group, PH Murder Stories The Verdict, and participate in our discourse about true crime, both local and international. This group is a safe space for true crime and mystery fans like us who want to engage in thorough discussions about the subject. To all our listeners, we hope you could support us on Patreon. If you're fond of online shopping, you can also help our team earn a small commission by clicking our Lazada and Shopee affiliate links found in the description. Any amount you contribute will enormously help support our team to produce more quality content. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. <laughs>